May we hear the text of the morning found in the book of Jonah, the second chapter, and the first ten verses. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice. For thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from the presence. How shall I again look upon thy holy temple? Thy waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Jeroboam the second king in the northern part of Israel ruled for 41 years in the first half of the 8th century BC and it says concerning Jeroboam in 2nd Kings 14:25 he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was in Gath-Hefer. And since in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, this prophet is called Jonah, son of Amittai, we have good reason to believe that it's the same man and that therefore the prophet that we are going to study this morning lived in the first half of the 8th century, say the early and middle 700s, B.C. in the northern part, the northern kingdom of Israel. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of this prophet. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Now, to understand what that commission meant for this prophet in the northern kingdom at that time, remember this. Amos, a contemporary of Jonah, probably, who was living during the time of Jeroboam II, was crying out against the sins of Israel, warning the people in Israel that the Lord is going to raise up a nation and bring it against them in judgment. And what nation was that? 
Assyria. And what's the chief city of Assyria? Nineveh. Therefore, what God is doing is at the very time when Amos is crying out doom on the homeland from the foreign invaders, Assyria, he's sending Jonah to preach repentance to the capital city. A little bit like God telling Ronald Sider to preach that World War III is imminent and sending Jerry Falwell to preach repentance in Moscow. And I'd be hopeful that our response to Ron Sider would be more positive than Israel's was to Amos, and I hope that Jerry would go more willingly than Jonah went to Nineveh. Most of you remember the story now. Let's get it before us. Jonah did not go east when God told him to go to Nineveh. Where Nineveh was, he went to Joppa on the coast and took a ship which was headed for Tarshish, which probably was in Spain. God hurls a storm against this ship, threatening to sink it. The prayers of the crew avail nothing. And so they wake up Jonah and ask him who he is. And Jonah says in verse 9 of chapter 1, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they're terrified. And they ask, well, what can we do to make this storm stop? And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and then the storm will be calm for you. It's a puzzle to me why Jonah was willing to lay down his life for these pagan sailors when a few weeks later he gets very angry at God for having mercy on pagan Nineveh. But I think that probably the reason he was willing to let himself be thrown overboard in this chapter is because of shame and remorse mainly. He had tried to get away from the face or the presence of the Lord, it says in verse 3. But how can you flee from the presence of a God who made the land and the sea? He sees how stupid he's been, how utterly foolish he's been. God has tracked him down. He has exposed his folly. His guilt is obvious. He surrenders himself to the punishment. There's no hope. So you might as well be thrown overboard to sink with the ship. Or so it seems his life is at an end. The crew throw him overboard. He sinks in the water. And what's the next thing that happens? Not the fish. That's second. The first thing that happens is the cry of distress. Even though Jonah knew that he was guilty, even though... Jonah deserved death. And even though he had surrendered himself to the just punishment of being cast into the sea, yet in the moment of dying, he remembered that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing mercy to thousands. And he cries to the Lord. And then the Lord appointed a great fish for Jonah's rescue and he had mercy on him in the belly of the fish. Chapter 2 is the prayer that Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish. 
while he was still conscious. And what he does in that prayer, and this is why I know that he cried in distress in the water, is he recounts for us his cry of distress in the water and his thanksgiving in the fish. But now before we look at chapter 2 and I expand on that, let me tell you why I take this book to be historical rather than a parable. Some people interpret the book of Jonah as a, as a long parable. They're not historical events, but it, it's an, a story that has a great spiritual truth. I have two problems with that, and the one is the text I already read in 2 Kings where Jonah, son of Amittai, was a historical prophet in the reign of Jeroboam II. And the second reason, the more important one, is what our Lord Jesus said concerning Jonah and the Ninevites. Matthew 12:40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, namely Jesus. So those of us who have a high regard for the wisdom of Jesus will be very slow to say Jesus was mistaken here in judging the repentant Ninevites and the uh, trip of Jonah in the belly of the fish to be unhistorical or Jesus' judgment to be historical. He thought the story was historical and I think therefore we who trust him should also think that. But if you ask, well, how can a man live three days in the belly of a fish? The answer is, he can't, probably, any more than a man can stay three days in the tomb and rise again. In other words, Jesus saw the event of the ride in the belly of the fish not as something that can happen by normal course of events, but as a miracle, a sign. It's what he says in uh, Matthew 12:39. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, a miraculous sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, namely the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus knew that it was no ordinary event that a fish swallows a man and he comes out living in three days. Rather, he says, it is a gracious, miraculous sign, which may be part of the reason why the Ninevites were so ready to repent. So there's no point in trying to explain this event scientifically any more than we try to explain the resurrection scientifically or the miracles of Jesus scientifically. To look, you know, to look in history books for places where it really happened is pointless in my judgment. Jonah cried for help and God saved him by swallowing up Jonah with a big fish. Now, at least briefly in that fish, Jonah was conscious. Probably not the whole time, but at least briefly he was. Long enough to realize he'd been saved from drowning in the sea. And during that period, or possibly periods, of consciousness, Jonah prays. And chapter 2 tells us what he prayed in the fish in those moments when he was conscious. So, when you read chapter 2, keep in mind that when he refers to past periods of distress 
from which God delivered him, he means when he was in the water, not when he was in the fish. The fish is salvation. The water was the threat of destruction. The cry of distress is past tense. The voice of thanksgiving is present tense in the fish. Now, let's look at the prayer. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress. Now, that's referring to the water when he was floundering in the sea. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. That is, he sent the fish. Now, there's a simple statement of the whole experience of Jonah in the water. He was sinking. He cried out to God. God answered him and sent his salvation in the form of the fish. Now, there is a tremendous amount of encouragement here. Um, And I want to make this as uh, encouraging to your own prayer life as I can. It has been to mine. Here's the main point I want to make. God answers his children when they cry to him in distress. That's the main point here in chapter 2. But there are some details about that which make it so much more precious a promise. And here they are. First, God answers his children when they cry to him in distress in spite of their guilt. Second, God answers his children when they cry to him in distress in spite of his judgment upon them. Third, God answers his children when they cry to him in distress and delivers them from impossible circumstances. Fourth, God answers us and delivers us in the nick of time. Fifth, God answers us when we cry to him in distress in stages, some of which are not comfortable. Sixth, God answers us when we cry to him in distress in order to win our undivided loyalty and fill our hearts with thanksgiving. And finally, God answers us in our guilty distress in order to make us merciful like he is merciful. Let's look at these one at a time briefly. First, God answers our cry of distress even when we're guilty. Jonah was not on the way to Nineveh when he fell out of the boat. He was on the way to Tarshish. He was disobeying the Lord. He was in the water because he was guilty. And there are some of you in this room today who are in trouble and in distress because of your own sin and disobedience. And the question that has to rise in your heart is, is there any point in crying to the Lord when my problems are owing to my own guilt and disobedience? And the answer from Jonah is yes. Pray to the Lord and he will answer you. That's not an isolated lesson in Scripture. Listen to this scenario in Psalm 107:10, following. Some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Just like Jonah. 
Their hearts were burned down and they were in hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, just like Jonah, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their bonds asunder. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wonderful works to the sons of men. If disobedience is the cause of your present distress, there is still hope. Cry to the Lord for mercy and he will answer you in spite of your guilt. Second. God answers us in spite of his own judgment. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. It says, For thou didst cast me into the deep. Thou didst cast me into the deep. It says back in chapter 1 verse 15 that the crew, the sailors, picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And Jonah says here, God threw me into the sea. Why? Because he knows it's a judgment from God. It's chastisement punishment. God's hand is against Jonah. He's angry at him because of his disobedience. And I suppose there's nothing that makes us despair more than to think that the distress we're in is the hand of an angry God against us. And I suppose most of us would conclude, if God has brought me into this rotten situation, there's no point in crying to God for help, right? Wrong. Because Jonah cried to the Lord in spite of the Lord's judgment upon him. And the Lord who threw him into the water rescued him from the water with a big fish. That means that even when God is displeased with you, The circumstances into which he brings you are never merely punitive or punishment. They're always summoning you back. They're always redemptive. Job 36.15 says, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. In other words, adversity is redemptive not merely punitive. Even if you have felt in this week like the hand of God's against you, that is no reason not to call on Him. Call on Him in your distress and He will answer you in spite of His own judgment against you. Third, God answers and delivers us from impossible circumstances. Verses 5 and 6. Listen to this unbelievable plight Jonah is in. The waters closed in over me. This is before he got swallowed by the fish. The waters closed in over me. The deep was around about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So it seemed. Now, it would be a terrible thing to fall overboard in the ocean when the sea is placid and have the boat disappear in the horizon. 
Add to that a storm with waves as high as these balconies and being sucked down under the water so deep, evidently, they hit bottom or came close to it, hit the land. And as if that's not enough, imagine yourself in your last gasp towards the surface hitting a mass of seaweed. This is a terrifying picture. And Jonah means it to be terrifying. I remember swimming up at Rollins Place last summer and you go out about certain ways and there's this bank of seaweed and then beyond that there's nothing. I used to, I used to swim through that. I had awful willies and my foot hit those seaweeds. Someone's going to grab me. And I try to imagine, you know, what it, what it is if you're way down at the bottom, you're struggling for the air and all of a sudden, seaweed everywhere. Now, the point is that the situation is impossible. I mean, it's over. He's done for. Right? I don't know why it is, but I think it is a mark of the Christian life that troubles come in batches. They never seem to get spaced out according to our powers to cope. You know, one a month or once a year. Just as soon as you have a problem, you can be sure on your way to solve it, you'll have a flat tire. I don't know why it is, but they cluster in our lives. And we come to the point again and again where we say, it's impossible. I can't take any more of these rotten circumstances. That's the point Jonah was in. And we ought to remember at that time, is it any worse than Jonah? 30 feet under the water with seaweeds tangled around his neck. And God answered him and saved him in an impossible circumstance. And so will he for us. Fourth, God saves us when we call on him in distress in the nick of time. Verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to thee in a holy temple. We could translate that first phrase a little more vividly and starkly like this. As I was losing consciousness, I prayed, I remembered the Lord. I don't think that means Jonah just started to pray at his last breath. I think that means he was still praying with no answer just before he blacked out. And I think he probably blacked out with no answer. And in the nick of time, God swallowed him up in a fish. And sometime in the next three days, he awakens a little bit and realizes he didn't drown. And then he prays because he sees that God is for him and not against him. God often answers our prayers at the 11th hour. Many a saint has groaned with the prophet Habakkuk. O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, will I cry for help and thou wilt not hear me? But whenever that's your attitude... And it will be inevitably someday. Remember Jonah and take courage and be unrelenting in your prayer right up to and into unconsciousness. Because God will answer you in the nick of time. Fifth, God answers our cries of distress in stages, some of which are uncomfortable. 
We must get out of our heads the all or nothing notion of prayer. When Jonah prayed in the water, we can be, I think, 99% sure he did not say, Oh God, send a fish so that it'll swallow me and I'll be in his belly for three days. Then put me on dry land. He didn't ask for salvation in stages. Probably he just said, God, save me. I'm cast out from your presence. Have mercy on me. And God chose to save Jonah in stages. It's not a very likely place to be saved in the belly of a fish. And Jonah is granted enough consciousness to know that he's there to whisper a prayer of thanksgiving. And he doesn't complain. He doesn't complain that God has taken step one in the salvation process, the deliverance process. He simply believes that this fish is a guarantee that dry land is on the way, however God pleases to do it. And he closes his prayer with these great words, deliverance belongs to the Lord. And he said it while he was in the fish. So, the lesson for us is don't disregard the partial works of God. Don't get angry at him because he has only taken one step towards your deliverance. We ought to be grateful for every step in our improved condition. A fish's belly is better than seaweeds at the bottom of the ocean, even if it's not Palestine. And sixth, God answers our cry of distress in order to win undivided loyalty and fill us up with thanksgiving. Verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty, or more literally, forsake their mercy. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. The answer to Jonah's prayer has had its intended and proper effect. Jonah's heart is full of awe at how anybody could go after a vain idol when they have a God like this who rescues when you call on him in distress. And he filled Jonah's heart up with thanksgiving and Jonah utters it in a prayer, which, by the way, I think means thankful people are better candidates for answered prayer than grumbling people. That's probably why Paul said in, in uh, Philippians 4, 6, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving. Thankful people are candidates for answered prayer because God's aim in answering prayer is to fill people with thanksgiving. 2 Corinthians 1, 11 says... You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks. That's the aim of prayer and answered prayer. And God said in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll answer you and you will glorify me. The aim of answered prayer is that we will be filled with thanks, give undivided loyalty to the Lord and glorify him from a heart full of gratitude. Finally, God answers us in our guilty distress 
in order to make us merciful like he is merciful. Now, to show you where I get this from Jonah, I need to finish the story with you. In chapter 3, here's what happens. He's on the land. He receives another commission from the Lord. Go to Nineveh. Do what I told you. Preach to them. And he goes, and in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God. Oh, my. Conversion. Repentance. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. Now, get the picture of what's happened in the first three chapters of Jonah. Jonah disobeyed God. God brings him under the threat of destruction. Jonah cries out of his distress to the Lord. God, in mercy, saves Jonah with a big fish, gives him a new lease on life and a second chance. And exactly the same thing happened with the Ninevites. They disobeyed God, says in chapter 1, verse 2, they were a wicked city. God brings them under the threat of destruction. Jonah preached, judgment's going to fall on you people. They cry out to the Lord in their distress. God, in His infinite mercy, has mercy on these 120,000 people, gives them a new lease on life, second chance. Can we escape the point that the reason God had mercy on Jonah in his distress was to prepare him to be a wholehearted instrument of mercy to Nineveh. The book of Jonah has a beautiful message about God. And the message is this. God's mercy is not confined to Israel. It spills over the banks of any nationality and reaches to any people or any individual who will believe God and repent of their sins. That's the great gospel message from the Old Testament book of Jonah. Not nationality, but faith is what saves a city or a person. The point is not God or my sense now. We're going to go a step higher in this. My sense is that even though this is a powerful point, it's not the main point of the book. The main point of the book is not God is merciful, but be merciful, Jonah, as God is merciful. The ultimate lesson about prayer in the book of Jonah is that God answers prayer mercifully to make us merciful as our Father has been merciful to us. And I think this is confirmed by what happens in chapter 4. In conclusion, notice this. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Jonah shows himself to have utterly failed to learn the lesson of the fish. He failed because it says he gets angry that God showed mercy to the Ninevites. He is still a rebellious instrument of mercy. So he goes out of the city, sits down to wait to see what's going to happen. And notice what God does in verse 6. Just as in verse 17 of chapter 1, God appointed a big fish to save Jonah from his distress, so he appoints here a plant to save Jonah from the discomfort of the sun. God's pedagogy, his method of teaching, 
is so gentle to this stubborn prophet. God is going to try one more time to get the lesson across. But notice that the lesson plan is reversed. He doesn't move this time from distress to deliverance like he did in the water and the fish. This time he moves from deliverance to distress. Verse 6 says that Jonah was exceedingly glad and happy that he had this nice plant giving him shade from God. Just like he was real happy that he had been saved by the fish. But the next day, God appoints a worm. I almost entitled this sermon, The Whale and the Worm. It just sounds like a first grade teacher going to work on Jonah. There's a whale, Jonah, and there's a worm. And if you don't get it, I'll make a plant. And uh... poor Jonah. He appoints this worm to kill a plant. And then he sends the sun up, clears the clouds away, and beats down on Jonah's head. Makes him miserable. And Jonah gets angry at God for ruining his plant and making him miserable. And then God comes and he speaks in the last two verses of the book. And the word of God lays Jonah bare. And what he says in essence is this. You pity the plant, and you get angry when I destroy it. But when I have pity on 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, you get angry at me. And that's the end of the book. And we're not told whether Jonah learned the lesson. Probably not because it's our lesson. We're the reader, and we're just left there. What will our answer B. I think that if God had written one more paragraph or said one more thing to Jonah, it would have gone like this. And with this, I close. Jonah, don't you see what I was trying to teach you when I answered your cry of distress in the water with the fish? Don't you see that I had mercy on you in spite of your guilt? I had mercy on you in spite of my judgment against you? I saved you when your situation was impossible. I delivered you in the nick of time. I did it by the miracle of a big fish. I filled your heart with thanksgiving. I won your vows of loyalty to me. Jonah, Jonah, be merciful as I have been merciful to you. Let us pray. Merciful Father, thank you so much that you rescued us from the storm of sin and condemnation in spite of our guilt, in spite of your own sentence of judgment, by the miracle of Jesus Christ dying for us, and have rescued us in many other ways in our lives. Our hearts are full of thanksgiving. And we just want to blow the lid off tonight, Lord, at the festival for your great namesake. But this morning, Lord, I want to ask for something special for our people. It's just unbelievable that Jonah could come out of that prayer of chapter 2 and hate the Ninevites. And Lord, if it could happen to Jonah, it could happen to us. Lord, don't let it happen. 
grant that we love one another. Love the people who are so mean towards us. Love the people who make it hard at work for us. And not take pleasure in anybody's destruction or demise, but have goodwill towards everyone and extend the mercy that you've shown to us, to all people.